Welcome back to the SoundLogic Podcast. We've reached episode 69. This is Canada's own Alanis Morissette, and we're talking about her album, Jagged Little Pill. We were so excited to see this album back on the list. It had, we'll talk about this later. It had been bumped from the previous version and it's back on in the 2020 version. And we knew from the beginning, we didn't want to talk about this alone. Uh, we wanted someone to help us along. We were hoping to have uh, a female voice along with us. And fortunately, we've got a wonderful guest with us. We're so happy to have Holly Gordon with us here today. Holly, thanks for joining us. And why don't you take a moment just to introduce yourself and how you describe yourself today? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. I am a digital producer for CBC Music, uh, which means a lot of different things. Uh, so I edit uh, for our website, the CBC Music website. I write music features. Um, sometimes I do a little bit of radio stuff. Um, so it's kind of all over the place. Uh, also, interview Alanis Morissette on, is on the resume. That's awesome <laughs> in fact that was the reason we we discovered you we found we found this really wonderful um article i guess uh an interview that you did uh i think all the way back in 2015 is that right yeah i did uh, yeah i did a um, yeah 2015 it was for the anniversary that year um the tw- wow it's a lot of years uh, the 20th anniversary 20th um, anniversary yeah i did an oral history I did an oral history with her and Glenn Ballard and Guy Osiri, who signed her uh, originally, and a couple of other like uh, much music DJs and radio station programmers. Well, it was going to be my cheat sheet. I was just going to like steal all the stuff from there, and uh, and you did all this incredible work. And I thought, man, this is really disingenuous. Maybe we need to actually reach out to this person who put this all together. And uh, you were gracious enough to say yes. So thank you so much for for being present with us and for sharing the space. Yeah. Yeah, no problem. I'm happy to talk about Alanis anytime. We can't thank you enough, and this is so, so cool uh, to to talk with you. Um, before we dive right into it, I'm, I want to give just a few general details about the album when it came out, but really this is a big part of, of why we wanted you here, Holly. So if there's anything you want to add in or interject or say, actually this, like you are more than welcome to have the floor at any moment. So... Uh, uh, we invite you to do that. So let's just do some details first and then and then get into some of the other stuff. Details, 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 details. So this album, Jagged Little Pill, was released June 13th, 1995. This was, uh, a lot of people don't know this, this was Alanis' third studio album. And we'll talk maybe a little bit about that uh, a little later. Um, all the lyrics were written by Alanis Morissette, and the music was all composed by Alanis and Glenn Ballard, uh, who we've who you mentioned, uh, who was the producer on the album. Um, the album was super successful. Number one in the U.S., the U.K., and nine other countries. Only number seven on the Canadian Billboard chart, which is interesting. <laughs> but um, but extremely successful, and to date, over thirty three million copies sold worldwide. Uh, the first Canadian to achieve double diamond status. Diamond is a million in Canada. Um, so the first Canadian to achieve that. A couple other notes about the album in general. Uh, it was nominated for nine Grammys. Uh, it won five, including Album of the Year. Making Alanis the youngest artist to win at the time. She was 21 when she won the award. Uh, the album has been re-released twice. Uh, October 30th, 2015, which was the as we mentioned, the 20th anniversary. It was a two-disc deluxe, deluxe edition. On 2020, it was a 25th anniversary deluxe edition. Um, and an acoustic re-recording of the album was released in 2005 for its 10th anniversary. So lots of... Come back to it many times. Um, and also, this is interesting, a stage production based on the album premiered uh, 
in 2018 and then went to Broadway uh, the following year, was nominated for 15 Tony Awards, including Best Musical. Holly, have you seen that, by the way? No, I wish I had. I actually, I I can't remember what month it was, but like really early on in the pandemic, the cast from that Broadway show had like a an event that I attended and I didn't know any of the people playing anybody in it, <laughs> but it was just like, it was just really fun to, to hear them sing the songs and like to see it in a different oh, context. Cool. And Diablo Cody also worked on it, who did the movie Juno. Oh, um, cool. oh, okay. And so it's just like, it's a, a, a lot of things that I love. Um, but no, I haven't seen it. Um, a good friend of mine went to go see it and she loved it, but that's as close as I got. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah. And it's one of those albums that like totally makes sense that you could, <laughs> It could translate to that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It has a, a very good uh, a good story through it, I think. Absolutely. The album produced six singles. Uh, you Ought to Know, Hand in My Pocket, Ironic, You Learn, Head Over Feet, and All I Really Want. They all went to number one as singles, except You Ought to Know went to number six, and All I Really Want went to number two. And the last thing I want to say here is there's a lot of amazing guests artists and producers on this album the two that i recognize were dave navarro uh and flea who were both in red hot chili peppers at the time uh dave navarro just joined for a little bit but uh, who's also in jane's addiction so that's some general general notes on the album and holly you're welcome to add anything but i i have a question for you um what can you tell us about and and you can say you know uh, I don't know if I can talk about that. We'll cut all that out. But I'm so interested in, uh, and and you touched on it in the article and the interview you did, the, the relationship between Alanis and Glenn Ballard, because I find it fascinating that Alanis comes from a background of two kind of dance pop albums and then releases this incredibly loud and fierce um strong album that is anything but kind of pop and happy and and all that stuff but in your in your words describe that relationship and how they really connected uh to make this album what it was yeah i think but maybe before talking about their relationship like it's better to understand where she's coming from because this really is it's her story and so she like she the two albums beforehand weren't really who she was or what she wanted to do. Like she was just kind of part of the industry cycle and um, kind of got got caught up in it. And she writes, writes about it later on, on Jagged Little Pill and on other albums too. Um, And she had been dropped from her label and she was moved from Ottawa to Toronto and she was just writing every day. She really wanted to make it, but she just didn't quite know how to make it work. Um, And so she was kind of in this free space, I guess, like, Obviously, she was also trying to like make rent and stuff or whatever, but um, <laughs> like live life <laughs> as a teenager. Like she wrote this when she was nineteen, um, wow. and so she was just figuring out life like any regular teenager would be figuring out at that time after high school. Like she had hits when she was in grade twelve. Like it was a really weird, wow. like yeah, just a really weird celebrity life that she was leading in Ottawa of all places. Mm. Um, and so and so it's just. She wanted to find her voice. She wanted to find her space, but she was a woman in the music industry, a young woman in a predatory mm-hmm. industry often. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she was just trying to figure it out. So she went to LA and kept writing with different people and she talked about it. When I interviewed her and I wrote about it in the piece, she talked about how like, she was kind of an, an appeasing person. And so she didn't want to insult people she was co-writing with, but she didn't really click with anybody that she was meeting in LA and that she was writing with. So she just kept writing and going on. And then finally um, she was introduced to Glenn and who, who just kind of like held space for her Mm. instead of having their own agenda, having what something in particular in mind and what they wanted to get out of the project. And so I think that's what she really saw in him and really wanted to come out of that. So I think it was just, he was the right person. He was obviously very Mm. talented and he just let her do whatever the hell she wanted. <laughs> I think that was kind of um, like really the key to their relationship was that he wasn't judgmental. Um, he was happy to do whatever she was she was ready to go for. Um, yeah, and so often it was just what well, he sets the scene for it. Like it was after a big earthquake in Encino in California. They had to actually like literally put a studio back together. So it was just the two of them writing and recording in his studio 
um, they didn't like they didn't have a, a mixer or an engineer working in there for a little while. Um, okay. So it was just yeah they they would write during the day, she would sing at night. They would start a new song the next day. It was just like this really perfect relationship that they had found in each other. This working relationship. Wow. Um, and a lot of she one of the things that surprised me the most in the interview with her was that she used mostly the original demo tracks, like the vocal tracks in the songs that were released in the end. Like she didn't re-record that. Um, wow. And they were just like recorded at 11 p.m. <laughs> in the studio. <laughs> and you can like you can hear that. We can talk about that, too. But you can hear that in the vocals like it's her vocals are so raw, also controlled, like there's something about them that doesn't feel studio made, I think. Yeah. Um, and that comes out of the situation that they were recording it, I think. Hmm. Well, like this, this trajectory to this, this thing that ex exploded and made her what she is and what she became known for. I love, I love acknowledging that she was trying to fit a mold and that it was sort of authenticity that led her to, to that breakthrough moment. Um, we, we've, We've remarked so many times, Mike, as we go through this list, how the greatest albums fairly often contain a, a sense of authenticity, a depth of like mm -hmm. someone just pouring themselves out there and be like, whoa, where did that come from? You know, and, the, and, it, and it clicks. Um, I, I think her Wikipedia uh, page references that she opened for Vanilla Ice and like putting her in that <laughs> context, like, you know, before all of this. Uh, Boy, it really does seem like she was really trying to fit a certain version of what the music industry expected. Um, I think she was also a contestant on uh, some like American Idol type of uh, uh, uncovered uh, talent sort of competition as well. Um, mm -hmm. She made it very far, but but didn't win. And you know, and then a few years later, this happens. Um, so so yeah. fascinating. And I think it's also because she's coming from that space, mm. it's so easy to dismiss her, right? Yeah. Which, whether rightly or wrongly, like not that, I mean, I love pop music. And so it's like, I love all of these different kinds of music. And I, I know that she's a woman who sings pop as a teenager. Like yeah. it's incredibly hard to be taken seriously. Yeah. Also, it's not what she wanted to be doing. Right. And so it's just so, so easy for the adults in the room to be like, this is not the thing. Um, and then she proved them all wrong. Yeah. Wow. It's funny how so many things in life, you know, you take, take that step back, not her choice, like being dropped by her label, but that's what she needed to be able to find her own purpose and and just really become who she who she knew she was meant to be it's so awesome yeah. um, and it's a great story so we love talking about the album artwork and and this is one that i mean is etched in my mind as kind of iconic and and a part of my childhood uh again if you haven't seen it and you're listening go google it uh there's so much um overlay you know it's to mainly two images of Alanis of her face but there's so many other colors and things overlaying what is that like times new roman font i felt like that was very <laughs> very popular in the 90s to just look like a typewriter on on the album um but it's so like it's blurry and same jagged little pill in the bottom corner is so small like you can barely see it some of we've talked about some of the design elements of albums from the 90s to me just are just confusing um and i don't understand them uh but but this is just i mean i could see it for a split second and know exactly what it is and where mm -hmm. it came from uh and this is i i think uh, where i'd kind of want to ask you holly did you have the album like do you remember when it came out did you were you into it right when it came out or did you come into it a little later? And so do you remember kind of this image kind of being everywhere? Uh, what's your yeah. experience for seeing it? I was 13 when it came out and I had the cassette. The image is really vivid. I, I'm like, I knowing that you guys like to talk about the album cover, um, I realized I didn't know a single thing about it. <laughs> um, but it is like, if you, yeah, it's an image that immediately comes into my head. It's just something that's kind of burned in there. So yeah. when I first started listening to the album, 
Um, it w- actually wasn't mine originally. My friend had it, and we listened to it in our like my friend's mom's car. I don't. I don't think we had a way to play it in the house, so we oh, just like sat in the car. Oh, that's great! Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I have just like such a vivid memory of it, but otherwise, it just kind of like is part of who I was at the time. Like that's the only very specific memory I have of it. I was. I've never seen her live, so I don't have right. that to go with it. Mm. Um, I think the colors are very '90s to me. Yeah. I also oh, think yeah. it just. Because um, a lot, I know that people talk a lot about, like, You Want to Know and a lot of the other singles that have a lot of, I don't know, like, kind of constrained and not constrained rage. Um, but a lot of the album is so vulnerable as well. And yeah, I find yeah. that that, like, the two images on the cover really are that to me. They're that part of her. But I'm not sure. I have no idea. I ne- didn't ask her about the album cover. I have no idea what she <laughs> wanted from this. <laughs> it, uh, it. Feels like a moment in time where uh, computer technology was allowing us to like edit graphics in this way, you know, like put some mm-hmm. weird swirly colors into someone's real face, and like yeah. it reminds me of some of the early Radiohead stuff too. Like, oh, someone's at their keyboard like playing right now to make this work, <laughs> and just blown away by that that they can actually do it. I see this image, and I'm taken back to teenage angst around male identity and male ego because i think i was also i think we were 13 around that time mike as well so we're all about the same age yeah it was Somewhere it was around. an album that i thought was girls music i i know i borrowed it at least at some point to listen to but wasn't one that i ever felt like i was able to own and i think about how like that's so sad and I hope that I'm raising my children better than that now. Um, I was just listening to a podcast with um, an actor from the show New Girl, one of my favorites. And uh, he was admitting that quite frequently, still today, men will come up to him and be like, hey, you know, my, my girlfriend really likes New Girl. It's, it's pretty funny. They won't admit that they like it because it's called New Girl. And I think like that's ridiculous. But I did the same thing, uh, you know, to to this music. I think I I liked it, but kind of secretly liked it, and wasn't like I couldn't own it enough to like go out and buy it and put it in my own stack of CDs. Uh, and I feel some sadness for that. But this cover, I think, stirs that up in me again. Like what what was it about the way that our culture was raising me that said this is this might be good, but it's not for you or you don't have the confidence to own it or something like that so Mm. it's been really healthy i think for me to have this cover in front of me again well i think also at the time like a lot of that was separated right and it's something that there's been a lot of work done to uh stop that separation but um like this was just before lilith fair and people had a lot of opinions about that right Mm -hmm. so I think that was everywhere. I actually like I never ever thought of this cover as like a girl cover. I know there's a literal teenage girl on it. Yeah. <laughs> but like the colors are even like almost primary. Yep. Yep. Um there's no good reason. <laughs> there's nothing rational in that either. Like that's painful to admit as well. Um, yeah, I yeah. like I'm not, I'm obviously not judging like a teenage <laughs> youth, but um, but just like looking at the system that like makes that happen, yeah. right? And yeah. it's interest. I really had never thought about it that way. Mm. And it's funny you say, you know, teenage girl because me, yeah, I think I was maybe twelve, twelve or thirteen, also when it came out. I, I never would have looked at Alanis at that time and thought she was a teenager, especially after listening to the music. Mm. Ben, I can relate to a lot of the things you're saying because I owned the album um, and and I listened to it a lot and I did like it. But again, it was kind of secret. I don't think I talked about it in public because I was afraid because there was that stigma around it that this yeah. was that this was girl music. Like that, oh yeah, it's popular and everyone sings along to Ironic, but really it's girl music. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure what, what even why that is because I really liked it, but it was kind of like, there was a, something in my brain saying, yeah, but you shouldn't, but it's not for you, but I loved it. And I did eventually give it away to my sister years later, maybe later in high school. And I wonder if that's why that I was like, ah, this is more for you. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you're four years younger than me. You should have this. And it's not for me, but I, mm-hmm. I really listened to it quite a lot. The lyrics, uh, I mean, when I was 19, I was figuring out how to make 
you know, three packets of Mr. Noodles at once in the microwave. Like I can't imagine, um, <laughs> you know, trying to like writing stuff like this is just like, you know, so far. I don't know if mature is the right word because this isn't what I necessarily want my daughter writing about uh, when she's 19. <laughs> However, I do want her writing about it if this is her experience or if this is how she wants to express or if this is, is just the story she wants to tell. Of course, mm. I, of course I do, but it's not the first thing that pops into my mind when I think of, think of a young woman. And maybe that's just, again, part of my masculinity, but it's just, it's just so beyond. It's like, Ben, when we talked about, this is a little different, you know, listening to Bruce Springsteen and Born to Run and think like, wait, is this a 26-year-old guy? Like, does it need 50? Yeah, isn't he always too much. 50? Yeah, his life is too right? full. Like, yeah. it, you know, so again, this is one of those artists who kind of steps out yeah. outside of her of, of her age. And um, because I can't imagine that everybody buying this album in 95 was, was 16. I mean, a lot of them were, but probably a lot of people in their 20s yeah. could really really relate to this like a yeah. lot of women in their 20s going oh, i've been through all that absolutely yeah. i have you know yeah and i think that's also one of the reasons the album was so well received and i mean what is it oh right through you is the song that's like very particularly about sexism in the music industry but mm -hmm. that's something that she had seen for years and again she was only 19 but the music industry was slow to pick her up yeah. but people weren't and right. so it was just yeah. like the this album it kind of joined like you're talking about how you you hope that your daughters don't write something like this at that age but like this is also it's a an album that brings together like very full emotions instead of just like one side of something where we're either allowed to be angry or we're allowed to be vulnerable we're not allowed to be both we're not allowed to be both in the same song like it's mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not allowed to open up in this way not allowed to be like maybe less polished which she didn't like obviously didn't care about when she was doing the demos but like in a good way like yeah. it was just mm -hmm. it was very raw all of those things together are were not that common like to be like brought forward and to be so popular and like i don't know like i also i, I think about everything that you you're both saying about what you were allowed to to like and not and i also think about how they're like seven women with albums in the top 50 of Rolling Stones top 500 and I'm just like and that's the new number yeah, um, right. yeah. and it's just yeah. like it yeah. it's all it's still there, still there. right um, and that's also done by a lot of people who are our age are also older than us um, and so that all of that stuff is still percolating it's still yeah. like yeah. making decisions and still making things happen today yeah, if there's anything yeah. ironic, there's something ironic about yeah. like not wanting to, not feeling like I could listen to music that's actually talking about the very problem of why I can't bring myself to listen to this music. And I don't know, that's, uh, there's something really powerful about that. Yeah, it makes me so sad that you thought you weren't allowed to listen to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, and I think about like what else was popular in the mid 90s, the grunge especially the male grunge attitude that didn't care. Um, I'm sure there was something in that too, that, that only, you know, there, there was a certain kind of angst that, that young men were allowed to have, uh, <laughs> right. As we, as yeah. we move through that era. But, uh, you know, it's still, it still impacted me despite that hesitation to oh. actually own this album. And I, I'm excited to dig deeper into some of these songs because, <laughs> Man, there's so much stuff here that feels so familiar <laughs> and so comfortable and so just a part of the, the soundtrack to my life, too. Mm. I was listening to the opening track and I thought, what another great opening track on an album. And I feel like in the first, you know, 20 seconds, it so wonderfully demonstrates here. Here are so many of the things you're going to hear on the album. Here's the harmonica. Here's the, the <laughs> guitar wah-wah pedal. Here's the drums. You know, the drums that you hear throughout the whole thing. Here's, here's this incredibly wonderful and unique vocal. So genuine and raw and different and beautiful. And then you get to the chorus and you hear her, her wonderful harmonies, which were all her and nobody else, I think, on the album. And that was something you mentioned right away was, was the vocals um, and how 
how raw and how she did it just on the demo there. Would you elaborate on that a bit, Holly, and, and walk us through some of that? Yeah, I think all I really want is such an incredible <laughs> song yeah. to open oh. with. And I actually, uh, just to have like a slight side story, but I did that song in karaoke with a friend of mine. And that's where you like really understand that there's there's no, nearly no repeated lyric in the entire thing like even when okay you get to those couple of verses that repeat a couple parts of the lines like words are changed within the whole thing um so it's like lyrically (laughs) yeah it's just lyrically it's really really impressive as well yeah um or i find anyway and like that's also the song where she uses silence to stop the song in like the last quarter (laughs) i Um, always loved that even as a kid i was like that's so smart (laughs) it is yeah and it's so gutsy um yeah oh yeah just right in your face yeah and i just think um so when she was talking about recording the vocals it just it sounded like about it just sounded so great like they they started writing the songs together and she would normally uh, like she was writing the songs but they were kind of like bouncing ideas off of each other her and glenn ballard and then they would just get through the song and he would do some of the music on it and then she would just lay down the vocals at the end of the night they would have just like lived the song for a day right and then she would go right into the vocals and she would do like one or two takes she wouldn't be precious about it and then that that would be the take and like they when i interviewed glenn ballard he talked about how he just assumed they would re-record them um like after they had the demos after they had a label like they would re-record them and then they tried and it just like she said that it just wasn't genuine and so they they it just didn't feel right and so they did they did re-record some of them and then they sent them to the label and they they weren't that good and so they stuck with the demo vocals for the majority of the songs because that's that's generally just the way you do it you get you get the structure down you get the feel down and then you you just touch it all up right yeah yeah and it just like lots of artists will fix a lot of things on the back end or they'll do it over and over and over again until they get it just to the right place that they want and then they'll fix whatever else needs to be fixed and that wasn't the case and you can hear it in the way that her voice changes all of the time like she will belt something out and then rein it in immediately and you can just like feel the emotion that's in her voice whether she's speaking or whether she's like screaming um yeah and it's, I don't, I find it so impressive because people say that like there's so much anger in it, but there's just like, there's also so much control yeah. in yeah. Oh, yeah. what she's doing. Um, it's just, it's so good. <laughs> there's an Alanis, I don't know if you call it vibrato, um, that she does on a lot of her songs that comedians who are doing imitations of her like to, like to play with. Uh, do you think that's, that comes from the way that this album was put together or do you think that's just like uh, a tool that she's got in her arsenal, the way that she makes her voice waver like that? I think that's just her. Like they're um, trying to remember what song it was on. There was a vocal effect on one chorus that the, I know that the mixer had worked on and they put, okay. they had actually okay. been listening to the Cranberries for a while. <laughs> and there was a, oh. an effect that he really liked. Um, and so he put it on the chorus. But like for the most part, I think that's just something that she, like you can hear it in some her other songs her too. Signature. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it's just kind of how her, how her voice works. Yeah. As far as I understand anyway. So you listen to the podcast, so you know you know we're going to do this. Um, we have a, a playlist on Spotify, and we always pick two songs. We'd love to get our guests to pick two songs. So if you were going to pick two songs, uh, either your favorites or to represent this album, which two would you pick? And then since we're at the beginning of this, you could feel free to talk about them and nerd out <laughs> as much as you want. I had, so I, I do have, I have three, and I was trying to pick yes. two. <laughs> Um, I was finding myself thinking, boy, I'm glad I'm not picking this week because there's a whole bunch of songs that I'd like to go on. The list. Well, maybe, I thought I'd only be allowed to pick one. Break the rules and and put two, put three. Just pick three. Yeah, oh, pick three. <laughs> oh, one rules. of them's only kind of like a half song. Okay, um, it's okay. So all I really want has always been my favorite, and I think it's because it it um, really is so fun to sing, um, and it's just it's also incredibly challenging. Um, and I was talking about before, but there's that little, um, there's a little silence break in the last bit that I think is really super fun as well. And I just like, it is a very brave song to open 
your third album with that you <laughs> like are reintroducing yourself to an audience with. Um, right. It's yeah. because it's not easy. It's not real. Like it's a bit of an earworm, but it's like you have to work at it to kind of like get yourself into it to be able to sing it. You can hum it, but like singing, it's going to take some work. Um, it's just it's not it's not super catchy immediately, I don't think. Like, I think you really have to love what it does to you when you listen to it. I don't know mm. if that sounds too vague. Well, there's um, an edge to it, right? Like, uh, yeah, she's singing with a chip on her shoulder and and that's not easing you into the album that's like like listen to me now because <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. there's a lot there's a lot of attitude to yeah, it yeah. and like going back and forth about like how smart she is and like mm -hmm. these sorts of things um and like this the sort of um how she wants to be met with that um and that kind of sets a bar i think too which i really respect mm -hmm. um so i think all i really want would be on the playlist for me um but it's also hard not to put you on a no on the playlist, <laughs> which I think was going to come up anyway. That's the second track. Um, so then the third will be perfect. Fourth hand in my pocket. We just keep. Yeah, exactly. We just keep going <laughs> through the checklist. Um, but I wouldn't have put it on the playlist, but I want to put your house, which is the secret track okay, on the playlist. Um, and I, they do come as a pair at the very end of the album. Mm -hmm. But you ought to know appears by itself first um, as the second track. Um, but they really are complementary to each other, and so I think if you have a playlist, yeah. they have to go together. Sure. So you ought to know is like it's the one that everybody knows. It's the one that Flea and Dave Navarro are on, um, yep. and so they—it's just—it's so great. It just you set up the beginning of that song where she just like i'm just gonna look up because i can never remember all the lyrics by myself um <laughs> oh yeah i want you to know that i'm happy for you i wish nothing but the best for you both and there's so much venom in that second line <laughs> so it's much. just delivered perfectly and you're like obviously she does not wish them yeah like no. well yeah. <laughs> so and so it's just again setting it re up really well and then it just goes for it and there's I can't imagine that there's anybody who listens to this song that like does not have that situation in their life where like someone has right. really screwed them over. And it's just every bad thing you've wanted to say about an ex who has like <laughs> just been the worst, like this song is is for that, right? Um, but then your your host, the secret track at the end, which is done in a cappella, is kind of the precursor to this song, I would think, even though it comes second. Right. So it is her moving through her partner's home, um, finding out that he's cheating on her. But it's like it starts kind of as this love song. It's just her voice. It's very slow. Um, it comes in a minute after the last song finishes on that same mm -hmm. track. And so it's like a surprise song, um, which is very hard to get to on a cassette. For the record. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to listen to it on its own. Now you can just yeah. look it up on YouTube. Um, That's right. Hmm. but it she said when I talked to her she said that that song your house was not true at the time that she wrote it but it was prophetic for later on in her life oh, wow. so that did actually happen to her but it hadn't when she'd written the song and so it, it feels like it's a it's um the precursor to you ought to know but it, it hadn't actually happened in real life it's right. so stripped down and raw it, it almost mm -hmm. has a haunting feel to it so to have it be prophetic too just i don't know almost makes it even more chilling the, yeah it's really <laughs> creepy <mood>. yeah <laughs> yeah and i remember like i was 13 when i first heard this this song about like this affair mm -hmm. and so it's just like i remember singing to this song i had no sweet clue what was happening like i didn't really take it in and so it's just like, being like really melodramatic about it <laughs> just like belting this song out um and then it took years until i really understood the situation but um it's just yeah the way she like very secretly quietly comes in unexpectedly the end of the album for this song which is not how you would experience it in a playlist i guess so that kind of sucks but um it's a little bit hard in this way to experience it the way it was meant to um but she had originally written it or they tried to kind of put it to electric guitar 
um, and it didn't work. So they just took out all of the instruments and then left it like this. This is one point where having the vinyl copy would, would not be as good because it does not appear on the original vinyl pressing. I'm guessing they just ran right. out of, of real estate. I did not know um, that. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a good thing to own the cassette or the CD in this case. <laughs> yeah. I, I imagine vinyl sales were not great in 95, though. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> it was really like prime the... prime CD time. <laughs> yeah, vinyl sales. It's not until this in the last few years yeah. that <laughs> yep. vinyl sales come back up. Mm-hmm. I had a couple of comments on, on both, the, you know, the last two songs. I think I skipped or just stop playing the album when that song came on because it made me especially as a young boy made me feel so uncomfortable which one actually i guess both at times but <laughs> um i meant the uh, your house okay, the hidden yeah. track because you're right there's something so haunting about it being just her vocal and nothing else um which is so unique uh can't even think off the top of my head hearing that kind of makes sense that it's tucked away as a secret track but uh, it's it's gorgeous but I think I think it did make me uncomfortable. Not even because again, I wouldn't. I didn't get the lyrics either. I I did not understand it. I wouldn't have understood it. But just something about that it made me uncomfortable. Um, and the other thing, I was listening today to track two, which is you ought to know, and then listening again to to the the last track, which is what is it called? Jimmy the Saint blend. I was listening to it and okay, they the the radio station we listened to at work which is a Toronto-based rock radio station. They play this song every single day, which is good and bad <laughs> because I love it. But Today or like in 95? No, like right now, like oh. every, sing- every single day. Unexpected. I mean, it's the same songs every day, but um, they play this song 100% every day, which I don't, which is a great song. I just, I just hate when you replay and, and kind of, you know, beat the crap out of, out of songs anyways. I'm remembering this, you know, the bass at the beginning while she's singing and the sliding almost sounds like a double bass, although I think it's electric bass. And then I went back and listened to the out the track to the album. And it doesn't have that. And I'm thinking, is that the one that they play on the radio now is the the track 13 one? Um, so I'll have to know. really pay attention when I listen because because when I listen to this album again over the last few weeks, I'm very familiar, but I'm listening to track two. I'm going, where's the where's the bass like mm-hmm. where where is it <laughs> what well, has something happened is this mandela effect or what's going on and then but it's on the last track so i, I is I am i missing I something an <laughs> no, that's okay <laughs> I but i can't remember the last time i actually heard it on the radio i do not obviously have this toronto rock station here <laughs> um, No, you wouldn't <laughs> <laughs> And to be honest, like I go through when I'm listening to the album, I like I start at the beginning, and so less likely that I will get to the second version. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, I hear you. But uh, that was—it's just huh. I had this memory of that bass guitar coming in, and I listened. I was like, "Where is it? Hmm. What? <laughs> Am I losing so my mind?" This might but, help, Mike. Well, There's a little Wikipedia note. Thank you. Track two is the most widely known version of the song, mixed by Chris Fogel. Uh, track 13, uh, Jimmy the Saint Blend, was only yeah. used in the original music video. So if you were binging on much music, oh. that's where you would have got that version in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, and, which I was. <laughs> and, and yeah, so uh, the radio, those of us who listened to this mostly on the radio back in the 90s would have heard track two. and. Track 13 was for those of us who had cable, I guess. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, but in 2022, it sounds like track 13 is the choice. Perhaps, maybe. So. I'm going to pay <laughs> attention. Yeah. Or maybe they've got both in their playlist and they have them on different days of the week. They just think they're oh, diversifying yeah. their. They consider it a different song. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know about that. But uh, okay. Well, th- thank you for clearing that up a little bit, Ben. But yeah, just one of the, another one of those interesting things. It's not something you see too often. A fairly similar sounding version of the same song showing up twice on an album. Usually that comes with like the bonus disc or the B-sides or the rarities or something yeah. like that. On track 13, I think the drums sound a little more programmed. Um, and I know a lot of lo- the drums were programmed, but um, 
Well, Dave Navarro and Flea are not on 13. I think they're on track two. Oh, so they're yeah, only they're on, on two. You get the, radio in okay, it. interesting. And they were just kind of like, uh, not to underplay their part, <laughs> but they like they were connections that yeah. Guy Osiri, who signed Alanis, had. And they were trying to reintroduce Alanis. So I think that was kind of like part of the market sell, right? Was to be like, Flea, Dave Navarro, these people you really yeah, know yeah. as like rock people are going to be on this track. And this is like, this is the single that you're going to hear. And yeah. so I think, I don't think she needed people to ha to add that cred to what she was doing. Um, right. But that is how they decided to market it at the very beginning. So somebody felt she did, right? Yeah. Kind of a wild story. I guess they were given just her vocal track and they just kind of jammed mm. along with that for a while. And that was then taken and mixed into the final edit but yes yeah, they didn't do it together yeah. like or, or they i guess know that's the rest very common but the, the uh, sound when they put it together yeah yeah it, it seemed it uh, to me it seems like it's a cool it's a really cool piece of trivia but they like it's not like they played together right, right yeah <laughs> no, they didn't no. then tour with her while she put, put the album out into no. the world yeah but. you know and, and when i listen to beat it by michael jackson i hear Eddie Van Halen's guitar solo. I go, oh wow, you know that's somebody else. Like that's that's something very special happening here. I I, I don't hear. It's not like I hear. Oh, listen to that guitar. Listen to that bass. Somebody else contributed something. I just hear this great Alanis song. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's still very much her song. Not to downplay those two guys, uh, but like I don't I don't know them obviously, but like I don't <laughs> feel like they 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 needed the song like in their catalog no, or no. whatever no they're pretty well known at the time anyway that's their story <laughs> so we talked about all the uh, all the singles but you mentioned something earlier the song that got her signed wasn't a single that was perfect so can you elaborate on that a bit for us holly when alanis and glenn had like they made the album in a couple of different batches because um, she wasn't really like she was going back and forth to Canada too, and so she wasn't around all of the time. Right. Um, so I think they like they rec or were recording earlier in the year. They did another batch in October, and then I think like after the end of ninety, like end of ninety four, just before the year it was released. Um, I remember like Glenn saying that he didn't know when it was where it was going to go. Like they they all had he had connections. Everyone they knew really had connections. Like there were people who believed in her as an artist and what she was doing, but they like didn't have the ability to release the album. Mm. Um, and so they were shopping it around and like people just didn't say yes. They just kept saying no. They were like, we like mm. it, but we don't like, we don't really think so. Like Atlantic was one of the ones that he mentioned and um, she'd been dropped from MCA. And so that wasn't really an option. Um, and so they just got a, like, there was one time where she had been back in uh, with him in California and they were writing again and she, um, they got a phone call. She was like wearing sweatpants uh, and they said like, <laughs> get yourself down to Maverick Records. Like you need to show your album to this person, Guy Osiri, who's only a couple years older than Alanis, which I also think wow. is like very important <laughs> to, ha yeah, it's, they were, they're also, they were both so young, but I, like all of these people who are older than her just didn't get it. Yeah. And right. so this guy who's just like trying to make a name for himself and he ended up being Madonna's like manager, also U2's wow. manager. Like he is, he's a very well connected guy. Uh, very hard to get a hold of for an interview. Um, and he like, so they, they took their stuff to, to his office. She's wearing sweatpants. She was like, well, I guess I'm not bringing like the whole parade to this this meeting <laughs> and she started to play perfect and like 20 seconds in he was sold and wow. he just there was just something in that song and that song is so heartbreaking it's just oh it's a it's also just like also one of her more vulnerable songs and so it's quieter yeah. but you really get like the emotion in her voice and it's about perfection mm -hmm. or not meeting the standards of perfection not being a perfect um kid to your parents what that expectation is from them. I think, well, oh yeah, the like lyrics, don't forget to win first place. Don't forget to leave that smile on your face. Like they're so <laughs> chilling. 
And it's just like the disappointment that you can feel just from like your own situation. Just hearing those lyrics is um, like, it can be really heavy, I think. Um, And he heard that song and he was sold. He he heard other songs too, but like all it took was the beginning of that song. I think Um, it's in your article where he says, I didn't even really know what the song was about, but I really liked it and it felt really authentic. I know. (laughs) I was like, oh, that's so cute. It shows, I think he was young too, right? Maybe maybe didn't even have as much life experience as she had to sort of get to this depth of a song. I was like, I love it. Yeah, Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Like I, when I interviewed him, I kind of tried to drill into like what, what he heard. Because yeah, uh, yeah he does say that he didn't yeah. really get the... He, he knew nothing about Glenn Ballard. He knew nothing about Alanis. He was going cold, like, into this whole thing. Just like they were, right? They didn't know who they were meeting. Um, and it was just, like, this perfect kind of confluence of things that needed to come together in order for this album to be heard. And then, of course, there were other hurdles and stuff to get it out. But it was just this song and these three people but really just Guy and Alanis who were very much on the same page um, both making a name for themselves at that time and it just it worked so well how many other people could have taken a shot and said yes you know said, oh, you know what we'll All give it a shot them. you know right <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> right and, and then it comes back to just the right guy who's kind of similar in some ways not entirely but in some ways it, it's so amazing to me that this is not a major label album like it's so rare to get 22 million copies from a Canadian artist <laughs> that's, yeah. that's not a major label. Um, yeah, all of the descriptors keep like yeah, making it seem less and less, less, and less likely. Uh, yeah. yeah, and I guess says something about the quality of the music that it pulled people in regardless of the power behind it. Um, mm-hmm. I think sometimes an album can make or break a record. This seemed to be an album that was going to succeed regardless of who was putting it out Um, yeah yeah i think um the like the music but also and the accessibility of like who she was mm -hmm. and we were talking at the beginning about how many projects are the big ones that come out that are really like they're just the genuine representation of who that person is and i think that's very true for not just music but lots of other things in terms of people talk about how to be happy. Like you just have to be yourself and do the work and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, I mean, that's not wrong. (laughs) She came out and she did all those things and she, she figured out where she fit and she was just very adamant that she wasn't going to change what she was doing for somebody who didn't get it. And so she, when I talked to, like I interviewed everybody in the piece before I talked to her. And so I had this idea in my head that she had tried so hard to get this album picked up. Um, and it was really disappointing and it was taking months and nobody would pick it up. But when I talked to her about it, and of course it's with like the hindsight of 20 years, but, um, she wasn't worried about it. She was just like, someone was going to get it. We just hadn't found that person yet. And she just was not bothered. Um, and so she just really believed in what she was doing, which is (laughs) so difficult and foolish, but wound up being okay. (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk about forgiven at all because i mean it is a little on the nose she's kind of vague but you i mean you could uh, you could read a lot of things into it and i don't know if you you necessarily i don't know if you dug into every track with alanis and i don't know i did. had uh, 17 minutes with her <laughs> yeah right <laughs> um but but i i doubt there's few people especially today who haven't gone through some sort of religious trauma, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, even even if they've maybe made peace with that or maybe are still have a positive relationship with, I don't want to say just church, but we're talking about, about the Christian church in this song. Um, I find there's even as more and more people uh, more recently have come out with kind of saying, here's my experience, um, that this is fairly... Again, so bold, so vulnerable uh, to even if it's not necessarily a personal experience, um, which it probably and at least in some way is. I didn't again, I didn't understand this as a kid like I wouldn't have. Mm. Um, but now going back and like just reading it, it's it's uh, words we've used already to describe chilling. Uh, mm. Yeah. <laughs> do you have any any comment on, on this track in particular? 
Um, I think originally I kind of leaned away from this. Like, I'm I'm not, I, I guess I like am agnostic leaning atheist probably. Uh, right. But I grew up like I'm confirmed. I grew up in a Catholic family. I mm-hmm. went to Sunday school. Um, and so I like when I listened to this when I was a kid, I kind of picked up. I'm looking at the lyrics on the side, but like I kind of picked up pieces of it and right. I think said no <laughs> to it and it was just yeah. like kind of just shut it out um so it took me a little while to kind of come back to it but I do think it, it um it is like a lot of it's on the nose and I do think it's still quite gutsy and yeah. um I do think it works well with a song like perfect because I think that it kind of um illustrates like I don't I don't know how much like she did say that the secret track was was pretty much the only made up song. Okay. Um, yeah. And so these songs are all coming from somewhere in her, right? So mm-hmm. this really kind of fills in that strict family dynamic that she described on Perfect yeah. um, and where it might have come from or like kind of how that worked outside of the home too. I confess my darkest deeds to an envious man my brothers, they mm-hmm. never went blind for what they did, but I may as well have. Like that, <laughs> those three yeah. lines put together yeah. so many things that ah. we like. <laughs> yeah, that we assume <laughs> that we well, like. Some people know, some people assume that we can like very easily, uh, kind of like attach to a lot of like different meanings. I, yep. Yeah, so I, it stands out a lot. I think also because a lot of the other ones are relationships with the people right and this one's not that you know the the fa- right after the those three lines uh, the father the skeptic and the son it's yeah. kind of it's um you're making such a statement when you when you go into some of that language and it's very dangerous um you know to to do that i'm and i'm not saying i'm i'm applauding her by saying mm-hmm. this um because it just comes back to what you've been saying all along that she really didn't seem to care too much for what people would think of her. She wanted to be as authentic as possible and portray her story the way she wanted to tell it, which again, reading it back now as, as you know, again, going to turn 40 this year, as, as Ben said, <laughs> and being able to look back at that, it's just, it's fascinating because like, like I said, like as a, I mean, I don't have the same story of as Alanis, obviously, but to express these things as a, as a 19 year old is just tremendous. Um, and I'm so thankful that she <laughs> that she did all that. Even mm. some of it, you listen to music and it's like it's been preserved for you. Like like we said, I didn't get it back then. Probably mm-hmm. didn't even get it. Wouldn't have even got it maybe 15 years ago. But but it really sinks in now, um, mm. and is very very special. Mm-hmm. And it might it might mean something entirely different to her now than it did at the Ab- time. Of too. course, absolutely. So as we kind of move to the end here, and and something we we try and wrestle with because I think it's important to kind of look at where we are right now and look at these albums, some of them much, much older than this album. But how does this, in your opinion, Holly, stand the test of time? Sometimes we ask, you know, is, is it so relevant? Uh, I'm kind of thinking for this one, what, what has aged well and what hasn't aged well, if anything, um, in your opinion? Um, I think like I can totally understand the argument that it sounds like it's from the 90s. I don't think that that's really detrimental to it today. No, um, <laughs> it sounds great. <laughs> I understand that I'm biased. Yeah. Yeah, she was just making music that was great. And so it <laughs> doesn't matter if it's 95 or it's 2022. To, like, it, it, I don't know. It, especially the way that they recorded it, it doesn't really, to me, it doesn't age in a way that is bad. Um, and I think what she was doing lyrically, musically, and also emotionally, um, that's still very resonant today. And I know like Olivia Rodrigo, for example, a very recent, huge, pop, like pop grungish star, Alanis Morissette is an enormous influence on her. Um, and you can hear it in the music, which does not sound dated, um, and it, you can hear it in just like the emotional intelligence. You can hear it in the way that she approaches her lyric writing, how open she is. Like also, the, I mean, the topics are very similar. Like it's a lot mm-hmm. about heartbreak and um, yeah. 
revenge, <laughs> which is really uh, satisfying. Yeah, so I think I, I think you can see Alanis in so many people today still. And so I, I think that a number 69 on the Rolling Stone list is bullshit. Um, <laughs> and that it should be higher. Like, I can't, yeah. I can't imagine removing it from the list. And it makes me so mad. <laughs> That's what I think. <laughs> when we started the project in 2019 and some of our first kind of general conversations about the list and about you know Canadian content on the list and we we touched on that and we were both pretty ticked off uh <laughs> that it had been removed we're like that makes no sense what a what a a monumental album uh, yeah it's disappointing and I just like I mean critics didn't like it when it came out right like she was often labeled as like the angry woman and that was not a good thing no um and it was like a stereotypical or stereotype genre that they made and it was derogatory and they did not like her and so rolling stone was no different at the time um no No. and there are tons of new people who work there and they've done a lot of really great coverage and i'm not saying anything bad about that but i do think this list feels dated sometimes because of the, the way that these albums are ranked yeah and it's just like the, on the original one wasn't Joni Mitchell the first woman who showed up and it was at number 30 you're right like that's <laughs> we, kind we, of ridiculous we had some beef about that as well <laughs> yeah yeah um, yeah and like every, people should be mad about it and like it, it doesn't mean yeah. that any of the albums on the list are not worth fighting for no uh yeah it's it's number three now which is good mm-hmm. yes uh, Joni Mitchell's blue <laughs> uh, and, yeah. and we've seen some you know a lot of good positive change uh, you're right uh, but that first list that came out in 2003 and the 2012 list which really was basically the same list and they just added some of their best of the 2000s albums into that if you oh, look okay. at the list of who they polled um, it was kind of that club a, a lot of their journalists who had those same opinions uh, and I think they've done better. I'll say better at this list. Mm-hmm. We've seen so much more inclusions from many groups that weren't included. Women, people of color, other groups that just were not represented well on the first two versions and who had major impact on music over the years that just weren't included. So mm-hmm. I think it's better. Um, I think some of the... Some of the I like what you said, a couple things I really like that you said. I like what you said about it does sound like the 90s, but that's not negative. And I totally agree because I listen to it and I go, yes, this takes me back. But that's such a positive thing. Because there are other things I listen to and go, ooh, you know, like, <laughs> uh, ooh. oh, yeah, that was popular back then. But, but not this. Uh, I think that it's funny how music and trends and nostalgia goes because I think that in 20 or in like 2000 2005 i might have listened and gone ah yeah that's so five years ago or tens of years ago Mm -hmm. but now you know people just eat it up i think some of the maybe some of the drum programming and some of the guitars Mm -hmm. maybe but all that's popular again like it's all in everything again i I thank you so much for bringing up olivia rodrigo uh my daughter who is 13 going on 14 is a huge fan oh (laughs) Um, awesome uh so i because of her, uh, thankfully, I'm familiar with quite a lot of her music <laughs> and, ta- <laughs> and Taylor and all these wonderful young female artists. I mean, again, Olivia, she's what, 15, 16? I so can't remember how old she is. She's, she's quite young, younger than Alanis, but you're getting these mm. these mature reflections on, on her experiences that, again, are resonating with everyone. I think not just women. Like, I think it's for women. Um in I mean, general, but but it's people can re- like I can relate to stuff in this album. You don't sure. Have to be I th- like it's just because it's by a woman doesn't mean it's for yep. women. So I like I don't I don't know I think like I mean I consume tons of art, whether forcefully or not, um, <laughs> that is by men all the time. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I don't consider it for men. Like, no. it's just, it's just not a thing. Like, I, like, I totally understand what you're saying. And I, I think that's yeah. just kind of like what kind of happens, right? Like we, yes. this is what happened in 95 when Jagged Little Pill came out. Like, it's not, 
no one says that about men. <laughs> no, so no, no, you're difficult. right. You are right. But like, I'd, I'd, it's it's very it's like a very common thing. Like, I'd, um, Little Women, the movie comes out. Like, tons of women go see it. It's like I don't know. I've seen a film about five men like hundreds of times. Yeah. It's maybe not called Little Men, but like, I, it might as well be. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, sorry. No, no, you're, like... you're, no, you're <laughs> right. You're absolutely right. I think there are some, because especially for so many years, the, the, the female voice was, and is, but was more so suppressed and not heard so that sometimes there was a need for a woman to come and say, I'm making this for other women to hear. I want them to hear it. I want them to get something from it. I don't think that you interviewing Alanis or Alanis herself would say that, that she did this album just for women i think she did it to express her story um Mm -hmm. yet hearing that female voice as a woman i can only imagine is empowering in some way and i think well i think of my daughter listening to olivia rodrigo and being out she hasn't gone through some of those things yet thank Mm -hmm. god Uh, but but she probably but she (laughs) probably will off apparently yeah (laughs) uh yeah uh, she she probably will and um this is someone who's you know empowering her to express her story so i'm so thankful for that uh, and those powerful uh, female voices. So yeah, I think, I mean, for me, it's a resounding yes. I mean, even musically, I mentioned a couple of things, but even musically, it like, it really fits in well. Um, and it sounds so good even today. I'm not sure that there's anything more that I can add to what the two of you have said. It's, I, I really agree that uh, this album is still relevant because of its authenticity and its willingness to, to go into areas that uh, other albums don't. I, I wish that I had given it more time. And it feels strange to admit this now as someone who's about to turn 40 uh, later this year. But I think this this week or the last few weeks is is the first time that I've really given the lyrics what they really deserve. And that's actually paying attention to them. Um, These songs were on so much on the radio that I think they were just background music that I could sing along with, but on a superficial level without really knowing even what I was singing. and uh, there's something powerful about that and i think that's why to me it is still really relevant holly i agree with you that i think uh, it should be ranked even higher um for how successful it has been over the years uh Mm. for how many other artists it's inspired um i would see it way higher uh, personally Mm -hmm. um top top 50 at least um it is absolutely appalling that it was removed (laughs) (laughs) the 20 just just it we we even at the time said this is nonsensical like like this is mm. such a, a groundbreaking monumental album uh, it's also interesting like because the states really kind of championed her when this album came yeah. out like not that canada wasn't behind her but she was huge in the states which is in states which is not a sentence that happens often about like a canadian no. artist right i'm really excited to see this back on the list i think it could even be higher it does sound perhaps a little like that sweet spot mid '90s uh, in terms of its sound quality. Um, it sounds like the the era it's from, and perhaps that's a reason why it's not maybe higher on this list. But uh, I think it it should be it should be higher. It fits so well too in the the kind of canon of strong female voices that we've listened to so far. I think about like Patti Smith and Joni Mitchell and uh, Beyonce and even Kate Bush, uh, you know, they all just seem like they come from this, this really powerful stream of, of incredible female artists. And I'm glad, I'm glad Alanis is back with the team here on the, the Rolling Stone list. So when I was doing some research, just a quick aside, I, at, the, at Wikipedia at the bottom, it sometimes gives you other links for stuff. And one mm-hmm. was like most successful releases by women or or all women groups or whatever and number number one is uh the body art soundtrack whitney houston which only half of it was her not to downplay it at all and then comes shania Mm. and then the third one is alanis and then is celine fourth uh fourth and fifth i believe (laughs) (laughs) um And I think that, you know, of the top, amazing that of the top six, like five of them are Canadian, yeah, (laughs) which is awesome, but, but just so tremendous that, that she's in that 
of course, great company, but, but that, as you said, that they're Canadian, which is like, yeah, it was an incredible time. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. And you're right. They're all from, yeah, they just like ruled. You're all, they're all from that era, like the mid nineties mm-hmm. into the early two thousand until you get into other great stuff, like from Adele, Taylor Swift into kind of later, um, Mariah Carey, big on that list, you know, but, but all these amazing Canadian women, um, mm-hmm. just fantastic. I think Cillian's like her biggest English albums did come out like in the late nineties. And so they would have all been right. pretty much the same time. Yeah. And Shania, absolutely. like, Shania's got increasingly less popular as the 2000s existed. Yeah. 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 Late 90s was a sweet spot for her, too. Just, <laughs> yeah, we had, uh, we were just cranking them out up in the Great White North at that time. <laughs> the last thing we, we love to just mention other albums that this artist has on the list. Unfortunately, this is the only one for Alanis on the, on the top 500. This was. In, without question her her most successful album she mm-hmm. had a few after that did okay and and i think most recently a, a new release in 2020 and yeah. we mentioned many re-releases and acoustic versions of this one yeah i actually like i i mean i've spent quite a bit of time listening to um a few of the albums that came out afterwards like supposed former infatuation junkie mm-hmm. under rug swept and i think like kind of around so-called chaos was when i maybe stopped mm-hmm. um and it's not that like it just kind of was getting into territory that i just wasn't as interested in um right. but i remember supposed former infatuation junkie i listened to quite a bit but i, I like nothing has really hit me like take a little pill dip there's just like there's nothing that really compares to it um yeah yeah i don't i on i don't know any of them as well and i'd like yeah, it's a little, I find it a little embarrassing, <laughs> personally, that well, I know so little. I don't think it would be uncommon for that. Mm. There, there's just something so special about this album, and it it resonated with so many people uh, in a way, and I'm not trying to be negative, in, the, in a way I suppose that the other ones that followed it didn't. Um, mm. And that's just the way it goes sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't want to say that to take away anything from Alanis as an artist, uh, but she, she nailed it on this one. <laughs> She really did. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, next week we have album number 70 on Rolling Stone's top 500 album list. That's Straight Out of Compton by NWA. And I think we've got a guest for that one. Should be good. There's a bit of a, a switch there, a bit of a shift. <laughs> a bit of a switch. <laughs> <laughs> well, we want to thank everyone for listening. And Holly, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for sharing your thoughts, your opinions, your experiences, uh, some of your. Uh, some of the knowledge and experience you got from getting to interview the, the people involved in this, Alanis herself and Glenn and uh, Guy as well. Just uh, just amazing to have you. And uh, we really, really appreciate this time. Yeah, thank you for having me. I've had a very nice time chatting about it. Good. I'm glad. Until next time, we hope that all of you listening will continue to be well, take care of yourselves and those around you. And certainly we hope that you'll join us again next time right here on the SoundLogic Podcast. Thanks, everyone. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page, on Instagram, or through our SoundLogic Podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening.